Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 51. We have been uh, sort of under the heading, the church, the body of Christ, and seen how the term church reaches into the Old Testament and brings all of those promises and prophecies and everything forward into the new covenant. And then we have that shift in wineskins, as it were, the new wineskin of all of God's grace and truth in that permanent people of God, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We have been looking at the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 40 through 55. Now the songs, you know, really sort of go on to complete the book, and the book takes us to a final completion of a new heavens and a new earth, specifically stated, not just inferred. But 40 through 55 is a sort of a singular unit. You'll remember that in 40 through 55, there is the servant of the Lord who is both an individual, and we see his identity, his mission, his suffering, and his glory. The servant of the Lord is an individual, and the reason I'm sort of reminding us of this is because what we'll be looking at today in chapter 51 through chapter 55, it actually refers back or brings language from these passages uh, into its sort of final wrap-up of the new covenant. So Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And of course, that is Jesus Christ. This is directly and specifically fulfilled at the River Jordan, in which Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God of God or the kingdom of heaven which has been in place and in force ever since and always will be. This Messiah, this anointed of the Lord is this servant of the Lord is going to bring forth justice to the nations. There's going to be a day of judgment where all things will be rectified and there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which will dwell righteousness. He's going to be appointed as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. This Messiah, this servant, will be the mediator of a new covenant between God and human beings. He is the messenger of the covenant. He announces the covenant. He expounds the covenant. He ratifies the covenant. He mediates the covenant. He embodies the covenant in so much that he does these things. He's going to appoint him as a covenant again to the nations. So when we think of what this individual servant is in Isaiah, he's spirit-anointed, he has a righteous and a just reign, a gracious redemption, a new covenant, and it includes the nations. These are the components that Isaiah is weaving together. The servant Lord can also be a collective, a group, Jacob, Israel, the nations. Those are all sort of brought together in this swirl of it's like when you go down to the ice cream store and you get chocolate and vanilla and they swirl it. That's kind of what Isaiah does here. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I've chosen. Just an example passage. This is a group, not an individual. And God is going to pour his spirit on them. So as we look at Isaiah, there we have the people of God. The terminology is scattered throughout. They serve God and they have the spirit of God. And that's not a group we're waiting for. 
That's a group we belong to and are part of. And so, as I was thinking about, Lord, what should I be speaking on, it just sort of fell upon my soul. I can't tell you whether the Holy Spirit told me or this stuff thrills me anyway. So whatever it was, we've engaging Isaiah. Chapter 51 through 55, it is a unit. Remember that it's a unit. It's an important unit. It's probably one of the most significant and powerful units within the prophets. And to appreciate it as a unit, we have to have some familiarity with the biblical covenants, not unbiblical covenants, of which some people try to promote. We promote only the clearly biblically established covenants, not those that are part of a theological construct but the biblical divine covenants. There is the covenant with Noah, Genesis chapter 9, established, and if you need a time frame, about 2500 B.C. There's the Abrahamic covenant around 2000 B.C. There's the Mosaic covenant around 1500 B.C. There's the Davidic covenant around 1000 B.C. And then come the prophets from about 800 to about 400 B.C. And it's really helpful to have that timeline in your mind. Because then you start to understand, oh, some of the things David said, or happened to David in 1 and 2 Samuel, maybe that has significance that the prophets bring out. And remember, the Psalms are really part of the prophets and that they have prophecy. They're not all prophecy, but there's prophecy within those Psalms. And that would be part of it, David himself expounding the Davidic covenant in Psalm 2 in Psalm 110 and other places. So what the prophets do is take the material, the components, the concepts of these four covenants that have gone before them in history. And they prophesy, and God through them gives promises, and they take up the types and the shadows and the symbols and the imagery of those covenants. And the prophets weave them together into the promise and picture of a new covenant to come in the servant of the Lord. That's how you understand the prophets. For 150 years, up until recently, there have been those who have said, no, you need to understand it a different way. You need to see that that which controls understanding the prophets is not what we've presented here. That all of these covenants are but precursors to the being fulfilled in the new covenant. There are those that have said, no, you have to distinguish between Israel and the church. That's the way you understand the prophets. And that's just not true. That's not how the New Testament does it. And you have to really close your eyes to a lot of prophecy and really squint and sort of put in your own opinions in order to arrive at that. So don't do it. If that's what you've heard in years past, days past, then just just go, no, I want to read the prophets the way they're actually written and the way Jesus and the apostles interpret them. There are others who want to say, well, there are a couple other covenants besides the one that are on this screen. There's a covenant of creation. There's a covenant of grace that sort of overarches and controls all of redemptive history. And again, We don't see any mention of a creation covenant anywhere in the Bible. It's a theological construct. It sounds really good, rounds out some rough corners perhaps in people's minds, 
but it's not biblical. So don't adopt it. There's a covenant of grace which is proposed to be the unifying force of the history of redemption. Problem is, it's not in the Bible. It's nowhere to be said. And all the passages, again, I just keep reminding you, all the passages that are adduced to supposedly prove that there's a covenant of grace, every last one of them I've ever seen is not the covenant of grace, but the new covenant. Every last one. Open the Westminster Confession. Look at the passages that they, that they promote as teaching covenant theology. And they're all about the new covenant in Jesus. They'll talk about an everlasting covenant and call it the covenant of grace. But our Bibles actually, in Hebrews chapter 13, talk about a new covenant and the blood of an everlasting covenant. And we're going to see that here in Isaiah. That the everlasting covenant is, has to do with Isaiah 53 not with some proposed covenant of grace. So it's important to understand redemptive history. And by the way, I will mention, there's an excellent book called The Message of the Prophets. I can't remember the guy's name. Michael read it. I read it. And you can get it on tape. It's really good to fill in the gaps of a lot of the tedious stuff in the prophets that honestly are not fun to read. But they're part of God's word and we should read them. And there's there's some, uh, uh, I don't know, richness in those things, but sometimes it's hard to uh, pump that water out of, the, out of the prophets. But there's an excellent book that helps you with that. I recommend it. It's a summary, an outline of the prophets. So here we have these covenants. And what we're saying is that Isaiah, chapter 51 through 55... He is one of those prophets who takes those covenants and weaves them together very specifically into a new covenant. Isaiah 51 through 55 is a unit. and Isaiah 51 through 55 reaches back behind it, back to Noah, actually back to the Garden of Eden, and talks about Eden and talks about Noah and talks about Abraham and brings in Moses and talks about David. But the whole time it's talking about those things, Isaiah is saying there's a new covenant to come. A new redeemer to come. A new exodus to come. And yes, there are some things in Isaiah 51 to 55 that speak to the exiles. The people of Israel that in 600 BC were carried away captive to Babylon and were brought back around 530 BC. And so Isaiah is speaking to them, but he has a bigger, larger audience and a bigger promise and prophecy and redemption. Those who are in exile and who are going to be brought back are but a picture of a larger history of redemption. And that's really clear in Isaiah itself. One of the ways we know that is when Isaiah speaks about a redemption, he talks about gathering the nations. That did not happen when the Jews were brought back out of the exile. So the prophecy of Isaiah is absolutely, most assuredly speaking of something bigger down the road that is worldwide. So we looked at Isaiah 51. Just a quick recap. I'm going to buzz through these things because we're going to finish the chapter And I have to say, 
that the last part of the chapter 51 is not as exciting as the first part. But there's the saying, if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. I guess they say that over in England. If you're in for a penny, you're in for a dollar. If we're here, there, it sounds better, in for a penny, in for a pound. It has more poetic, poetic ring to it. So we're in for a pound. And the reason I'm doing it is because I don't want you to just say, well, I'm just going to read these five chapters and I'm going to skip the stuff that's just dreary and I don't understand. I want us to at least look at it so that when you read through it, it won't be so dreary and you won't be so lost. Because um, I'm telling you, I mean, I read these things sometimes, I'm like, Lord, <laughs> this, is, this is really tough to read. And I'm not getting a lot of juice out of it. <clears throat> but it is the word of God and we honor him as such. So to get a running start to the last half of the chapter, a little bit on the first. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. God is saying, wake up, I have some things to say to you. Listen to me. God is appealing to anybody who has ears to hear. Look to the rock from which you are hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. We saw those pictures of a quarry being carved out of a mountainside. And God is saying, hey, you've been quarried. There was some effort and some design it took to get a block of granite and bring it to the proper place. When you, we had to look at granite for our kitchen tops and you go down there and you see all this beautiful stone, all out of your price range, of course. But it was really, really gorgeous stuff. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth and pain. And here's that Hebrew parallelism. Look to the place from which you were mined or quarried out. Look to Abraham and remember all the promises Remember the prophecies. Remember his inheritance. Remember he was a man who lived by faith. Remember he was a man who served the Lord. Remember he was a man who offered up his only son. Remember all those things. I am now going to bring them to pass. Not in 700 BC, but in a future time and place. And so if we look at Isaiah 51 through 55, in Isaiah chapter 51, there's Abraham and Sarah. In verse 3, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Think of how this whole section starts, Isaiah 41. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. That's the message of the whole 15 chapters that are involved, or 16, really. Indeed, the Lord's going to comfort Zion. He's going to comfort all her waste places. Remember, Isaiah's talking to a people that are in exile. They're foreigners in a foreign land. <clears throat> yeah, they've tried to become part of the local population, but they're still... They're still longing for their home. In her wilderness, he will make like Eden, in her desert like the garden of the Lord. Again, reaching back to that old creation and saying, I'm going to bring a new creation. I'm going to bring like the blessing that was in that place and the presence of the Lord that was in that place and the tree of life that was in that place. I'm one day going to bring it to pass. That's why how does the book of Revelation end? Doesn't it end with a garden and a tree of life? the fulfillment of all that Isaiah says here. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving in the sound of melody. Again, Revelation 21 and 22, what do you see? No more tears, no more crying. The ultimate salvation of God is going to cast, and we're enjoying some of the fruits of it now. We got a down payment of it now, but there's one day when we will enjoy it all. So Isaiah 51 not only talks about Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Sarah included, but the new creation. Isaiah 51, 4 and 5, pay attention to me, O my people, give ear to me, O my nation, for a law is going to go forth from me, and I'm going to set my justice for a light of the peoples. This is language right out of Isaiah 42. He's going to bring justice to the nations.
My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. And here we see God talking about his righteousness, not our righteousness, not something God demands, but something God provides. It's right here in the prophets. The law and the prophets speak to this. And it's equated in that Hebrew parallelism. It's his righteousness. It's his salvation. In his arms will judge the peoples, and the coastlands will wait for me, and my arm will they, on my, for my arm will they wait expectantly. So we have the peoples, the peoples, the coastlands. There's where Isaiah, just right up front in the beginning of this section, bringing in the nations. Abraham, and you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And he brings up this theme of the arm of the Lord, which we'll talk about later. 51.6, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky that you're looking at is going to vanish like smoke, and the earth is going to wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. This is almost apocalyptic language. It's almost the language we will see in the book of Revelation, of an earth that's populated with human beings in rebellion against God. And the whole entire first creation is going to be brought under judgment and then it will be rolled up like a scroll. And the beginning of that is here in Isaiah. Some of that, all the language, by the way, the book of Revelation, if you haven't (laughs) figured it out, is all taken from the Old Testament. But God says, in contrast to the judgment that will come, my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. I ask you this morning, is this addressed to you? Do you see yourself in this prophecy? Do you hear the voice of the Lord when he says, listen to me? Do your ears perk up and say, whether I'm, you know, really hitting on all eight cylinders this morning or whether I'm only hitting on two, yes, that is me. The echo of my heart to when God says, listen to me, the echo of my heart is, I'm listening. I want to listen more. My greatest grief is I'm not listening enough. Are you in this prophecy? A people who has in your heart the law of God. Jeremiah 31. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. Do not make an invalid assessment of the wicked who prosper or hold places of power. We're watching America disintegrate on purpose. It's being dismantled on purpose by the wicked. We know it. You should be me. I'm watching a nation that I used to live in that was greater than the nation you grew up in. And it's being on purpose dismantled in front of our eyes and there's nothing we can do about it. Don't get frustrated. Don't think we're losing it. If you're worried about your children, remember, children have gone through world wars and some have done fine. Children have gone through plagues. Children have gone through famines just like adults. Stay focused on God. Don't be dismayed. Don't go, oh, the wicked, they're going to just overcome us. That's fearfulness. Don't fear. The wicked are going to label us. They already are. They're just not acting on it yet, but they're working on that. Don't fear. 
but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation will be for all generations. That's what you focus on. Where is our hope? Is it in this world? Is it in America? Where is our hope? What if you were born in Russia where you already had nothing and you had children there? There's all kind of saints that we should be praying for that are in that circumstance. I heard again that, you know, the people in Lebanon, the description of what they go through. But I did have to say to myself, I'm like, okay, so they don't have plumbing, they don't have refrigeration, they don't have electricity, kind of like the first century when Jesus grew up. But I'm pretty sure they knew how to manage it better because that's all they had. But still... Don't worry about those things. Don't frustrate. God says, awake, awake, put on your strength. Well, the people say, awake, awake, put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old and generations long ago. And there's this reference to the Exodus. Now, we've heard three times in this chapter, awake. Or rather, hearken, listen, hearken. God is calling. God is saying, listen. He's saying to his saints. He's saying to me and you, when you look out here on this world in which people are railing on you and people are mocking God and people are living like there's no tomorrow and everybody is grubbing for money and stature. He says, listen to me. Pay attention to me. As Peter says, I've got some exceeding great promises for you. And I'm good for it. When God signs off on something, you don't have to go check his credit rating. He's A+. He hasn't been downgraded that I know of. When he says something, you can take that to the bank because a spiritual bank will take it. And all these promises that God has given in these chapters, these verses where he says, listen to me, listen to me, pay attention to me, listen to me. What should our response be? Well, certainly it's faith, but also it's prayer. Seventh century B.C., God says, listen to me, and the response that, that Isaiah paints is, okay, Lord, I've heard your promises. Now wake up and start doing it, Right? You're going to say, well, but it didn't happen. It's like, well, no. It didn't happen then. It happened to the more specific exiles. They came back. God fulfilled that. It wasn't until seven centuries later that he fulfilled the ultimate issues that he was talking about. Even then, we don't get the new heavens and a new earth. But here's what faith does. Faith doesn't sit around and mope. Faith doesn't sit around and say, oh, well, you know, what do, I, what do I have? Lord, okay, it's going to be a long time, you know, we'll just sit around and wait and do our thing. We'll be like Peter after the resurrection when he thought the Lord was done and he said, I'm just going back fishing. That's not to be our response. God says, listen, listen, listen. And the response of faith says, okay, Lord, we'll wake up and do it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What? Your kingdom come. This is an Isaiah version of your kingdom come. 
And there's days when we might go through that prayer almost like prayer beads and just say, Lord, that's all I've got today, but I know it's true. And there are other days when we're just before the Lord and you get a vision of that kingdom and all you can do is say, come, Lord Jesus. One of the things we can say, and one of the things we pray for, Jesus is coming, and the, the coming of the kingdom, remember, it's not just a second coming, it's coming now. Lord, come here in Greenville, South Carolina, in 2022. Right now, come here. Come with this group. Come in this person's life. Come in the CAR. Come in Lebanon. Awake, O oh Lord. Put on your strength. You've got a mighty arm. You have a mighty arm strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Awake, O Lord. Be who you are. Fulfill these promises. Lord Jesus, you are in heaven. You have all authority in heaven and earth. You have blood that cleanses from all sin. You've established a new covenant. Work in the lives of human beings around us and around the world. Your kingdom come. Awake. Put on your strength and work. Three times awake. Awake, awake. There was three times listen and three times the answer of faith is awake, awake. Put on your strength, the arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old. And if you want to know why the new exodus is so significant, what are they supposed to, what are they doing? They're saying, awake, just like when you redeemed the Israelites out of Egypt. When you took the greatest nation in the history of the world at that point, and you broke them in pieces, and you freed the people of God. Using language from some of the Canaanite uh, deities, Rahab and the dragon, you cut Rahab, those people who worshipped Rahab, who worshipped Canaanite gods, which was in Egypt also, worshipping these gods, you cut them in pieces. You pierced their dragon, their version of deity. Didn't you dry up the sea, the waters of the deep? See, Abraham got a lot done, didn't he? God said, I'm going to take out Sodom. And Abraham said, Lord, please, you know. What if there's 50 righteous people whittling God down? This is how you whittle God down. Another place, isn't it? Lord, awake. You have done mighty things in history. You have done mighty things in the last 2,000 years. Awake. Do things among us. We were speaking the other night about having an age group. We sort of have an age group gap of around, what, 12, 13, 14, 15 in that area up to about 25. You guys are getting old, by the way. As Gwen will say, you're not cute anymore. And we need some people who are cute in here. Awake, Lord. There's a college right down the road. Another college past that. A few other colleges scattered around. There's a bunch of northerners moving down. Piling in so you can't even drive in the streets anymore. 
Awake, O Lord, awake. God did something in my living room 20-some years ago I never thought would have happened. But there was a brother and I who, uh, someone you don't know, who actually prayed for about a year, praying the Lord would do something. And at times we were caught up into the heavens, and other time it was just laboring in prayer. And we didn't know what God was going to do. We didn't know what we were praying for. We just knew we wanted the Lord to awake. And gosh, did he, huh? little thunderstorm of spiritual power right over that house for five years. You all may not remember, but we shut it down. We still had 50, 60 coming when we shut it down to become a church. God woke up and God did some things. He put on his strength. He reached into people's lives. And a thousand people came to a house buried way back in some neighborhood that I could barely find coming home from work. Still still got to apologize to my neighbors for all your cars and for all your parking in front of their driveways. I guess that's part of being cute. So that's where we are. And what's going to happen when God's awake? The ransomed of the Lord. Ransomed how? Before the children of Israel went out of Egypt, what did they do? Exodus 12, what did they do? They had a Passover. Just before God gave his promise and covenant with Noah, there was a sacrifice made. And just before they got out of Egypt, there was a Passover celebration. The ransomed of the Lord. They will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Zion being that picture of the place where God dwells and where his heart is, representing the people of God, representing the King of God, representing the priesthood of God. And everlasting joy will be on their heads. Everlasting joy. That's a promise. Awake, Lord. Let your kingdom come. Everlasting joy. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee, will just run. It will just jump out of the way. It will go. It will disappear to be no more. Is that not the message of Revelation 21? God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. We have to interpret our tears in the light of everlasting joy. We have to interpret our hardships in the light of everlasting joy. And we have to interpret our labors in the light of everlasting joy. I love Isaiah 51, 9, or 1 through 11. Do you? It's awesome. So there's our little summary. 
There's Abrahamic covenant, Sarah's included, the new creation, justification, my righteousness, all nations, and a new exodus so far. Getting kind of skinny on space here for Isaiah 51. Let's pray and ask the Lord to finish it up for us. Someone might say, well, this is a long time through the message to pray. I'm like, no, this is, that, was the, that was the summary of what we've been through, so <laughs> what can I tell you? <clears throat> Grade me with a D, I guess, I don't know. Well, Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we are just filled to the brim, or know we should be, and know that we can be, that these words do not pass away. Lord Jesus, as you said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words won't pass away. Isaiah's words won't pass away because you came to fulfill them. Lord, all the promises here that are so full and so rich, we long to have our hearts filled with them because it's just, gosh, that's just what we want. But Lord, you know that uh, if we were filled all the time, we would be ruined. We wouldn't be good for anything. We would be so heavenly minded. We would not be any earthly good. And so, Lord, you attenuate things for your purposes, but if we start to think how big these things are in your heart, we want them to be in our heart, but they are always in your heart. And they are eternal, and they are infinite. And as you said about your righteousness, it will never fade away. It will never wane. Or First Peter, the salvation that does not fade away. Lord, we're going to come to the last half of this chapter. It is still your word. There are still things in it that are important for us to hear. And we pray you would fill our minds and hearts with that also. And give me the ability to mine from your scriptures those things that truly apply to us and are just richly meaningful for us. And pray you send your Holy Spirit and just shine in our hearts these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Isaiah 51 isn't finished. God says, I, even I, am him who comforts you. Now again, how did this big section start out? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And God says to his people who are in exile, and further down the road, his people who are deep in the darkness and bondage of sin and Satan in the world. He says, I, even I, am him who comforts you. When you find yourself in a ditch spiritually or other ways, we cry out to the Lord. And here's what's in his heart. And it's what he's written in his word for us us to assimilate. I, even I, am him who comforts you. Is this personal? Is this generic? What does I, even I, mean when the God who made the heavens and the earth I just heard the other day there are six billion galaxies so far that they've counted. They're probably going to count a lot more when the uh, web telescope gets fully operational. Six billion galaxies. 
That's a lot to juggle, isn't it? And how many billions of stars are in each galaxy? These are numbers that are beyond human comprehension. And there's God with one hand, maybe even behind his back, juggling the galaxies. I mean, it wasn't, but right, by the way, 50, 60 years ago that we knew that some of those stars we were looking at were actually galaxies. We thought that the whole universe was just our galaxy. My, how things change. Kind of hard for human beings to keep up with, if you ask me. But The one who's juggling all those galaxies stoops down and says, I, even I. The placement of the earth in our own galaxy is there by design, and if we were placed anywhere else, there would not be life on planet earth. Our solar system, our earth, is right in the middle of the only zone that could support human life as we know it in our own galaxy. Some of you have seen maybe the movie Contact or other movies that where they sort of love to either take the universe out here with all the stars and then zoom down to planet Earth or be on planet Earth and zoom out to the stars. You always wonder how they do that. I do anyway. Like, this is really cool. I want to see it again. Go. Go play back. But the ones where they're out, you know, mingling in the stars and they start getting smaller and start zooming into planet Earth till they zoom into a house and then the people who are going to be in the movie, there they are. Well, that's God and that's you. I, even I will comfort you. And he's not comforting you with, well, I, you know, I'm ba- bouncing all these stars and I got a little bit left for Steve Cowden. That's not it. See, children seem to think, because they haven't had children, they haven't really been around for a while, so they think, well, mom or dad, you know, cares about my brother or my sister more than me. They have no idea what it would be as a parent where you love all your children equally with the entirety of your being. You don't go, this half loves Bobby, and this half loves Susie. That's not how it works. With the whole of your being, you love all of your children. Now, some are more frustrating than others or (laughs) easier to deal with than others, and that causes different interactions, but it doesn't cause a heart change. And that is God. He's there balancing the billions of galaxies behind his back and with the whole of his being zooms down into Steve Cowden's house, this dirtball center that isn't worthy of anything. And he says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Is that your God? If you're in Jesus Christ, then that is your God. Islam, what can it do for you? Oh, well, you know, do some good works and hopefully it'll balance out your bad works and no one else will bring an accusation against you in the day of judgment. And maybe, fingers crossed, toes crossed, maybe you'll make it. How about Hinduism? Ah, well, we're all gods, so it's us, even us, who comforts us. How's that working over in India? Or you could be the, you know, the, new, the new age spirit person, having some kind of new age spirituality. And you go, well, you know, God just floats around everywhere and I'm floating with him. I tried that. It doesn't work. 
God is a personal being, I, even I. This is not some generic universe left to some anomalous, you know, being, if you can even say that. It's not some state of nirvana that we kind of fell out of, Buddhism. It's not some steady state universe of materialism where, well, all there is is matter, and I, even I, oh well, you know, that's just poetry. The God of the Old Testament and the New. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God and our Father is a deeply personal being. I, even I. And with the whole of my being, my eye is upon you. And with the whole of my being, I can and will comfort you. I give you the comfort you need. You may not agree with me, God says. Most of the time we don't. Most of the time we're like, Lord, you need to dial it up a few more. But that's okay. At least you're turning the dial in the right direction. I want more of God, not less. The atheist, whether practical, whether hard atheist, or the person who's just, you know, okay, tip my hat to God and moves on in the world. They're not trying to dial their life to have more of God. They're dialing their life to have less. So if you find yourself, Lord, where am I? Who am I? What am I? I'm just so confused. Where are you trying to put that dial that tells you who you are? Lord, I want more of you. And God says, I am, even I will one day fill you with the whole entirety of who I am, and I'll fill you as much as you can be filled as a finite human being. The only limit is you, God says, not me. Here's this great God who is personally engaged in your life and with the whole of his being committed to you to bring you to a new heavens and a new earth who are you to be afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is like grass? What a contrast. The day's probably coming more on America. We don't know how they'll come. We know ultimately it has to come because that's what the Bible says. How it's actually going to come. We can make predictions and we can extrapolate and do this and do that, but... Right now there are saints over in Ukraine, saints in Russia, saints in China, saints in the <clears throat> rural areas of India, saints all over Africa who have people who would like to see them gone. And gone probably in the most horrible way possible. Who would like to see Christians fail, who would like to see Christians suffer because they are of their father, the devil. Many of them are the ones who are in power, whether it's the power in a village or a power of a presidency, they still die and they're still like grass. Who are you that are afraid of man who dies? 
Who are you that fears continually all the day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy? You see, that was, that's what goes on. We can't relate to that. Why would I want to hurt someone just because they believe in Jesus? Well, they do. Oppression is all they're about. I mean, you read in Isaiah about what? The, here's people who are rich and in power will go and, says, devour widows' houses. Happening in Isaiah's day, Isaiah chapter 1 through 5. Happening in Jesus' day. Isn't that what he said about the Pharisees? You are they that devour widows' houses. I mean, it was still going on. Think about it. I already got more money than I need, but I'm going to go and take this poor widow's house. Add it to my portfolio. That is the human heart. Oppression and destruction. God says, wait a minute. Where is the fury of the oppressor? Sorry, I forgot to highlight that part. Another question, a question to make us think. I am God and I, even I, with the whole of my being, am the one who comforts you. Why are you worried about men who die like grass? Why are you worried about the fury of the oppressor and the destroyer? Start to think about it. Think it through. Now, they may succeed in destroying you. They may succeed in getting your house. But think it through. What does that ultimately matter? Sure, it's a pretty, pretty big inconvenience in this life. But what does it ultimately matter? Do you always evaluate things in the light of that joy of the new heavens and the new earth? Obtaining gladness and joy forever. And God is saying, you've forgotten your maker, the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, the one who's juggling six billion galaxies and counting. You've forgotten him. You guys need to watch PBS Space Time. Get your heads straight with how big the universe is, how big God is, how powerful he is. Forget their philosophy. It's not worth it. But the science part's pretty cool. He laid the foundations of the earth. God says, The exile will soon be set free and not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking, speaking to those exiles that aren't exiles yet, but will be. And again, even though you're in dire straits, even though you're in hard times, I'm the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. God as the great creator is such a vital doctrine for Christian faith in all levels of our life. It's not just something we defend against the scientists who mix their own personal philosophy with science and come up with there's no God. By the way, God has used that to force us to really think through things and it brings up so many cool things. Eric Metaxas has a great book on that. God again says, consider who I am, the great creator. And I'm the Lord of hosts. 
Remember Mr. Parham said, it was, a, well, it was a Lord's Supper a few times ago, and he just got up and talked about the Lord of hosts out of Isaiah. And I'm like, oh, I've probably read that all my life. And that day, it's just like, man, that's so cool. The Lord of hosts, God has everything he needs, every resource. If things aren't happening in your life, well, maybe you're not praying. Or maybe God some, got something better for you so that when you end up on that day of judgment, you got something to show for your life. You glorified God in the midst of oppression and destruction. I was watching uh, <clears throat> Battleship with uh, my grandson Saturday. I love that movie. It's raw, raw Navy. My dad was in the Navy, so I like it. And there's all these officers walking around with medals on their chest. Well, how did they get those medals? Did they buy them? You know, go down to the local Army-Navy store and buy them? Did they get them at a garage sale? Or did they earn them? Now, in the day of the Lord, there's going to be medals handed out. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes I'm reading through the Bible, I'm like, well, we're supposed to have humility, but this doesn't sound like humility, getting, you know, honored in front of everybody. Is that, I don't know. I don't know how to work that out. I'm, I'm so easily turned into pride, I just forget about it, because I'm like, I don't want any honor, because I'll turn into pride in five seconds, so... Done. Get rid of that and figure it out in the day of the Lord when I don't have any sin anymore. But there are things to say about medals. Are you earning them? Or do you think they're going to be handed out simply because you show up? The Lord of hosts is his name, and you're supposed to be in the fight along with all his hosts. Are you in it? I've put my words in your mouth and I've covered you with the shadow of my hand. Now, I'm not really sure who is the recipient of this, whether it's just any individual Christian believer or is it the, specifically the prophet Isaiah. I didn't get a chance to look it up in the commentaries. <clears throat> Pretty sure uh, they all have a ton of opinions about it. But whatever it is, God is saying, hey, personally, I'm with you. No matter what, I'm the Lord of hosts. And I will put my words in your mouth when you go to witness for me. And you have to bear witness in any occasion, for any reason, with any audience. And I've covered you with the shadow of my hand. Martin Luther, the whole, whole of Europe was trying to kill him. As one person observed, he lived in an unwalled city the whole of his life. Little city, no walls. Jerusalem, Sennacherib tried to crush Jerusalem with a massive army, and God said no. And for the next hundred years, the greatest empire the world has ever seen, the Assyrian, could not touch that city. Sennacherib brags about it in a monument. He says, yeah, I bottled up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. <laughs> but you don't read where it says he took him out. I've covered you in the shadow of my hand. And God does this to establish the heavens and to found the earth? What? You mean what happens in my life is part of God's plan that is intertwined with six billion galaxies? Do you understand that? Why is the earth just a little dot in the middle of some arm, in the middle of some nothing galaxy compared to the rest of them? Just a little minor galaxy. 
That's where the whole universe is centered. So they have a question. You go to PBS Space Time, what's the center of the universe? And they'll blah, blah, blah on it. It's kind of cool. They sit there the whole time like, mm, I already know where the center of the universe is. Right here. It's right here. The center of the universe is where the center of God's heart is, and the center of God's heart is right here on planet Earth. And he has his word out there in the, in the, in the mouths of his saints to speak wherever it's needed to bear witness, to call to repentance, to call to faith, to call to salvation. And the world is going to oppose and oppose and oppose. But God says, I have put my words, not your words, my words in your mouth. And I am there covering you with the shadow of my hand, the hand that holds six billion galaxies. You're there in my hand. And I can keep up to establish the heavens and found the earth. There is a reason and purpose for six billion galaxies. Didn't happen on its own. You are the reason. And say to Zion, well, what have we been talking about this whole time? You are my people. What time is it? Oops, okay, got to go. Real quick, just the rest of the passage. It's, these are kind of like the tough ones. But rouse yourself, rouse yourself, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the Lord's hand. From the Lord's hand, the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling, have you drained the dregs. Remember again how this whole section starts. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. You have suffered enough. That's how the whole section begins. And here God is speaking specifically to that. You have been in exile. You have had it hard. Some of you more than others. I have had to judge you because I'm a righteous God and I cannot sweep your sin under the carpet. I must deal with it. But now I'm done. Now it's over. And I'm speaking to you. Right now you have none to guide her among all the sons that are born, nor is there any to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. Leadership is a vital thing in a group. Leadership is important in a home. Guys, are you taking it seriously? You will give an account for your leadership one day. But here's Israel flopping around like a fish, doing all kinds of sinful things because there's no real leaders. Sure, there's people in the office of leadership, but they are not leading. And God says through Jeremiah, I'm going to one day in a new covenant, I'm going to give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge. And with understanding. And Jesus Christ has been doing that for 2,000 years. A lot of fakers, and we mostly look at the fake. A lot of those who are in the place of leadership and really shouldn't be. They're not equipped. They're not qualified. Some of them aren't even Christians. But then there's those good leaders hidden away mostly. Little places here, little places there. Little churches like ours all over this world. Leadership is important. And God is going to give it one day, but here is the fruit of not having it. These two things have befallen you. No, no yellow, because there was nothing that really stuck out. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword. How will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net. So they used a net to catch animals. Full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Here's the state they're in when God comes to speak comfort to them. 
I know that's how the Lord saved me. I, that antelope caught in the net, like that was me when the Lord saved me. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't keep my soul alive. I'd already tried everything. It all failed. Full of the wrath of God. You don't want to get God angry. You don't want to tick God off. It is not worth it. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk but not with wine, the wrath of the Lord. Thus says your Lord and God, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger, and you will never drink it again. And that's what happened when you got saved. God brought you to himself, washed away your sins in the blood of Jesus. His wrath was upon you up until that point. Remember, the idea that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as being the gospel is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. If you are not in Christ, the wrath of God abides on you, period. Not the love of God. The wrath of God. The wrath that we've been reading about here. And God says, when I bring you back to myself, I'm going to take that cup of wrath out of your hand. And I'm going to put something in its place. And you will never drink that wrath again. As Christians, we are not under the wrath of God. Now, sometimes we bring ourselves by our foolishness under the displeasure of a heavenly father. And his spanking sticks hurt. DSS won't intervene to get you out of it. But we will never drink wrath again. I will put it in the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, well, I guess I sort of stopped there. Put it in the hand of your tormentors. Book of Revelation has seals. Some of them we can relate to. We can relate to the four horsemen, right? But the fifth seal is persecution. And what we fail sometimes to realize is the book of Revelation is talking about trumpets of wrath and then bowls of wrath. God is responding to the wicked persecuting his people. That is a big theme in that book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 15 where God says they pour, he poured out, or the angel poured out one of the bowls and all of the rivers turned into blood, right? And what's the response? True and righteous are you, O Lord, for they have poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. That is a big theme in the book, a big theme happening all over the world, something we may face sooner than later in our lives. God's going to reverse it all. Read Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So that's it for now. Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, again, we think of Isaiah chapter 51 and what an amazing chapter. You pour your heart out. You, even you, invest your whole being in this chapter. All your promises have the entirety of your being behind it, all of your power, all of your wisdom, all of your might, all of your love. Lord, you just call upon us to live unto you and to live in hope, to not put our hope in this world. Uh, This world is passing away, even America. Um, This world has really, in the end, nothing to offer us. We are strangers and pilgrims. 
Lord, just pray that we will live like that and read Isaiah 51 and glory in it and be strengthened to uh, take on our mundane responsibilities this week and be honorable unto you with, beginning with our own minds and hearts where we live in faith. And that, Lord, we will have hearts to cry out, awake, 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 put on your strength. Let your kingdom come in this city. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.